and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but there was a series of commercials that was put out, and it, it concerned foster parents. And I know there's some here that have played that role and been a part of those children's lives, and I uh, admire and, and give you credit for that. But if you remember, the, the whole thing was it would go through and it would kind of say, if you've ever done this, if you've ever done that, maybe you've burned the spaghetti, etc. And then the tagline always was, you don't have to be a perfect person to be a foster parent. And uh, I've heard that. And I want to just kind of tell you today that you don't have to be perfect to be a part of God's church. You don't have to be perfect to, uh, to play a part in the role that God has in store. This morning I preach, don't make God beg. He just wants somebody to do something for the kingdom. That's what he asks. Just do something and he'll make everything else happen. You're not the power. You're not the authority. You're not the word. All you have to do is be the recipient, the vehicle of what God wants to do. It's amazing if you'll just show up somewhere. God will let everything else fall into place. And I want to preach to you tonight about God's flawed church. And if there was a tagline, he's okay with that. He's okay with flawed people. You can be seated. A man named Jim, and I have nothing more than just that name. His name is Jim, and he wrote on a blog that I had read one time, and I'll pr try to read it again. Just understand as I'm reading this, a lot of it is from him. I don't know who he is. But he wrote, he said, the daunting task is one of introducing someone to the Bible. It's a daunting task because it's hard to summarize a book compiled by so many different sources over such a long period of time. But I would tell you that the Bible is not, at least at first glance, a cohesive book. Very seldom is someone able to turn to the first page of the Bible and read it all the way through to the, the last page. It's, it's not a novel that works itself from A to Z telling a complete story from start to finish. Instead, really the Bible is an anthology. It's a compilation, a combination of books written and edited by a host of authors. And I will insert right here that all of that is under the unction and, and the, the direction of God. It's, it's his, once again, God using humanity to do what God wants to see. It, it, it's, it, the Bible has so many different literary genres. There's poetry. There's wisdom. There's law. There's history. Gospels. Letters. Prophecy. There, there's, if you will, apocryphal writings. There's parables. And, and although it's written in two languages, Hebrew and Greek, every once in a while you get a little Aramaic that's thrown in there as well. I have heard it said, and, and it's about, I mean, on its own, yeah, sure, it sounds good, but it's about as useless as those WWJD bracelets that were so popular a couple decades ago. But uh, the Bible is not necessarily uh, just basic instructions before leaving earth. It's far more than that. The Bible is more than an instruction manual. The Bible is more than a book that you turn uh, when your life is, you know, how, how do you figure life out or how do you solve a problem? It does help, but it's far more than that. The Bible is not a, a fortune cookie. It's not a magic eight ball that you shake when you have a question. You've heard me tell it, but I've said it about the guy that was facing a problem in his life and he wanted to flip open the Bible for some advice and he said, whatever, the first verse I come to, that's what I'm going to do. And he flipped open the Gospels and it said, Judas hung himself. 
Not liking that, he said, I don't want that. I'll go to the next one. And he, he flipped it randomly and it said, go and do thou likewise. Better be real careful how you do that. I happen to like Chinese food and all of that. I could eat at every greasy Chinese diner in the world. And if you don't like cats, it's just because you've never had them fixed properly. But, uh, <laughs> but the other day, I, I went to, 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 I think it was probably Panda Express. Uh, I went there and got my fortune cookie and cracked it open, and there was no fortune in it. I was like, that stinks. Kind of was scared a little bit. But instead of seeing the Bible as some magic eight ball, it's better to understand the Bible this way. It's where two stories come together. The story of God and the story of humanity. A lot of people will tell you that the Bible is, is about God and God's will. And that's true. But don't leave it there. Again, these are all kind of some thoughts from, that, that, that I pulled from, from Jim that sort of thought about this a while. They forget that the Bible can't just tell you about himself, about God or God's will, without also telling you and I a lot about ourselves. The Bible, that ancient book of stories. I use that word story not because it's Aesop's fables, but it's the story of ordinary folks like the Josephs, Ruth or Peter. Or Lydia, they lived a long time ago and the fascinating thing is while their stories are rooted and grounded in an absolute uh, particular time or place, you can take the story of Ruth as we've done this year and it also becomes a timeless story that's not limited to a geographical area or a time in, in our life. Those stories of David's and Solomon's and, and all of them, they, they help you and I discover how God's story intersects with our own. The Bible helps you and I see that the story of God can be woven into the fabric of our own lives. And I like that. You, if you go to the, the Greek islands, and I, I would love to do that. I, I think that being able to go uh, to the places where civilization uh, is part of the oldest. You would start there in the valley of Mesopotamia where, where, where the Garden of Gethsemane would be, Iran, Iraq, and, and everything spread from there. The closer you get to that central part of the world, the farther back you can seek your history. I had a friend in school. His name was Zamir. Zamir was from Bosnia-Herzegovina. And uh, 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 he would tell me, he would kind of make fun because he, he would, we, we would get all excited about American history. You know, something would happen. We'd go, oh, that happened, you know, 100 years ago. Isn't that old? And he goes, my house is 250 years old. Now, where he lived, there, history just was a lot longer. But in the Greek islands, they're the home of Hippocrates, the father, father of what many call modern medicine. But in that same area, you find an olive tree that they say dates from his time. It would have to be over 2,400 years old. It's a very large tree. But close inspection would show you that regardless of how large the tree is, the inside is completely hollow. In fact, it's literal more than just a thick ring of bark. That grows there. There's a few long, straggling branches, but every few feet they're supported by sturdy wooden poles because they don't have the backbone to support their own weight. And, 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 and there's a leaf here and a leaf there, and every year it'll produce a few olives. 
But yet if you were to stand there at that tree that's so old and represents history, you would look all around there. They tell me that you would find olive branches in, or olive groves rather that stretch in many, many direction, directions. They might be younger trees. They're not near as thick. They're more slender. But they're a lot more branches, a lot more leaves. And it's there that masses of olives are collected and found each year. The tree of Hippocrates can be called an olive by nature. There's still some functions. I mean, if you could pull the DNA out of that, it would say, yes, I'm an olive tree. But it has long since ceased to fulfill the olive's function. Tourists might line up to inspect this ancient relic. They may link it to some dim history, but that job of that particular olive tree has, has been passed long ago to the successions of those planted olive groves that surround it. And, and what I'm trying to tell you is the form is there, but the function is not. There's too many people that have stopped reproducing. They're just content. To, to have a noble history or, or look back in the past and show you what it has always been. But God's church is more than just a relic of some ancient teaching long ago. God never designed the church to be a place of form or fashion that you could go back and say, look how old the church is. But instead, God wants the church to be an olive grove that produces fruit every year. Doug Bannister wrote, that the spring of 1940 found that Hitler's and his panzer groups had overwhelmed uh, uh, from, from Britain all the way into France and it was mopping up and there was, they were approaching the, the, the coast there between France and Great Britain. The Dutch had surrendered in the Splitzkrieg. The Belgians had surrendered. The army, uh, the British army foundered on the coast of France there at the Channel in a town called Dunkirk. It was said, and it is said, history bears out, nearly a quarter of a million young British soldiers and some 100,000 allied troops faced capture and imminent death. Just a few miles away, the Fuhrer's troops closed in on that easy kill. Quarter million, what is that, 250,000? plus another 100,000 of allied troops and a smattering of others. You've got almost uh, 400,000 people that had no escape. It was a typical, I mean just prototypical, Pharaoh's army behind you, the Red Sea in front of you type scenario. The British Navy in trying to figure out how can we affect the surrender, or, or, or not the surrender, but the salvation, they realized the British Navy only had enough ships to save 17,000 men. You do the math. The House of Commons, the Parliament of England, had begun to brace itself for hard and heavy tidings. And while the world watched, if you will, with uh, fading hope, upon the horizon appeared a bizarre fleet of ships It was trawlers and tugs and fishing sloops and lifeboats and sailboats and pleasure craft. There was even an island ferry named the Gracie Fields. Even the America's Cup Challenger called the Endeavor, all manned by civilian sailors, sped to the rescue. This ragtag armada eventually rescued 338,682 men and returned them to the shores of England while the pilots of the Royal Air Force jockeyed with the German left in the skies above the channel. 
It goes down in naval history as one of the most incredible naval exercises or rescue operations ever seen. I propose to you that likewise the church is God's ragtag armada. The church is a mix of flawed individuals on a rescue mission obtained and commissioned by God. And I'm telling you that's the best way I can describe it. It's not the smartest, it's not the greatest, it's not the most rich, it's not the most famous, but it's you and I that God brings together and he throws us in the midst of battle and he says whatever you do, save the world. There's no doubt. I mean, come on, I live with you. There's no doubt that you're flawed. And there's no doubt I'm flawed. But the message tonight is not that we condone the flaws, but rather we find this simple purpose, the intersection of your story and God's story. Where does your life meet the Savior? Where does your moment of grace kick in? Where does your flaw intersect God's design and plan. Tom Long, a doctor, perhaps a theology, I'm not exactly for sure, has wrote of visiting a chapel. It's a very small chapel, unimpressive. But in it, there is a life-size rendering of Jesus with a sign on it that says, from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, it says, Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And people come, and they look at that, and they read that. But whoever the artist was that, that created that also placed 12 chairs in a semicircle facing Jesus in that. It was a place for people to sit and to reflect, if you will. And the artist had named each chair after one of the disciples. With no instructions, Brother Hera, with nobody telling you what to do, the artist realized and Dr. Long himself realized that there was one chair out of all of those chairs that showed more uh, uh, being used. It was smooth and shiny where countless people have sat. It was the chair of Judas. For whatever reason, you and I and humanities, we tend to gravitate to those that are flawed. Perhaps in Judas's chair we see a glimpse of our own shortcomings and failures. And I wonder if tonight there's some of you that perhaps would be the one that would sit there Wondering what your purpose is in the church. Saying, Brother Buford, I'm flawed. Too many skeletons, too many demons in my closet. It's okay. While I'm not saying that, that I want you to continue to, to, to work and act in those flaws, you are in good company. Oh, I could take you. Uh, in fact, do it. I won't read it necessarily, but just so you have it open, why don't you turn to your Bibles in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11. Some of you might could even quote it. And that's the that that becomes the you know the, the heroes' hall of fame. And there you've got I had to pick the smallest Bible I own. It says by faith Abel, verse four. By faith Enoch. By faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Isaac. There's a lot of crazy and incredible uh, feats that were there. 
until you start reading in between the lines. Abel was killed for his sacrifice. Now, no, or, or rather Enoch, now, I'm, truth be told, let's, let's be honest, Enoch, he's pretty much perfect. <laughs> I mean, about the only man, there was one other one that was uh, uh, Elijah, but, but Enoch's the only one that says he walked with God and then he just wasn't. God just said, I, you, you, I'm, I'm not, I don't want you to mess up, Enoch, you're on the perfect path. <laughs> Noah, he got drunk. Abraham lied and doubted God's provision and took matters in his own hands with his servant. Sarah did the same thing. Isaac lied and Jacob lied. Joseph could never keep his mouth shut and kept rubbing God's promise in his brother's faces. Moses stuttered and had a massive anger problem. Rahab was a har harlot. Gideon was scared and doubted God's ability. Samson couldn't stay away from women. David lied and murdered and committed adultery. And Samuel couldn't keep his boys in line. You could read now, there's others that are not mentioned in Hebrews 11. Jonah, he got mad at God's grace and Solomon, as wise as he was, was pretty stupid when it came to relationships. Elijah was scared and doubted that God was even with him. Peter lied and cursed. I mean, come on, not even Job cursed God. Paul, he killed Christians. Judas was a traitor. But in the very next chapter of Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And while I celebrate that and I think about heroes of the faith and men and women that have gone on for God, I realize that that great cloud of witnesses is made up of flawed people. There's no one perfect. So why in the world would God even want us? But all you got to do is read his story to realize that regardless of the flaw, regardless of the brokenness, regardless of the state of humanity, he kept pushing and he kept pushing forward until finally he said, I'm going to fix it once and for all. And he came down born of a woman. He had pushed through the Old Testament. He had come down to the intersection of the gospel. It's interesting now, I know a third of the angels fell, and that, I know, grieved God. But at least you had two-thirds that didn't. The Bible tells us all have sinned, all humanity sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yet why in the world would, would God say, though you and I, if you point your finger right in your chest, you and I have brought God the most pain and frustration of all creation, yet still... He says, you're the apple of my eye. We're his church. We're his church. And because of that, his church has a purpose. It was Paul that spoke a lot about the flaw, if you will. Paul understood this, and Paul was a great man. And uh, I mean, every once in a while you'd see a glimpse of, uh, of some, some things of Paul, but I don't know, when you look at Paul after salvation, he's... He walks a pretty straight path. But he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, I'm just preaching Christ crucified. The Jews is a stumbling block to the Greeks. They think it's foolish, but to them that are called, it, it's the power of God, the wisdom of God, and, and the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. He says that God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God wasn't looking for perfection because it would have never worked in this world. There's a lot of things that start off trying for perfection. 
Invariably they fall, but God said, I'll just start with the fallen first. And watch me build up. And he said, he said he chose the weak things of the world to confine those things that were mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God chose. Yea, even the things that are not to bring things to naught, things that are. And here's the phrase, so that no flesh could glory in his presence. I said the church is made up of flawed people. And while you and I are there, we don't glory in that. It's what God does with us. And it's how God can do it. And it's how God can take a nobody and and make a something out of him. It's how God can take someone that's racked with lying and cheating and doubting and sin and all of the maliciousness of society and how in the world can he bring it. And it says that you are in Christ and God has made unto you wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And according to as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. 1 Corinthians goes on. But, but let, me, let me take you, before I get back to that, let me take you back to Hebrews. What more could I say? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. What more could I say of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets? They, through faith, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of the lion. They, they were quenched in the violence of the fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. In their weakness, they were made strong. Wax valiant in the fight. Turn to flight the armies of the aliens. It's that phrase right there that says, out of weakness was made strong. Let me show you Paul's understanding of this. Paul said it this way. He said, it's not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord. But he said, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Whether in the body, I cannot tell. Whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows, but such a one was caught up to a third heaven, most likely talking of John. He said how John was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one will I glory, but I can't glory. I've got infirmities. I wish I could do that. I wish I could have heard God speak and thunder in the heavens, but I didn't. He said, but you know, I, I couldn't, I... I got this thorn in my flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. And I sought the Lord three times that it would leave me alone and it didn't. But this is what God said. He turned to me and he said, my grace, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength, not Paul's strength, but God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul said, would I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ would rest upon me. This is what Paul was saying. I've got flaws and I've got weakness. But somehow God is able to reach in my life and take the very thing that ought to throw me out. It ought to put me off of the the, the potter's table. But in that he said, in your weakness, Paul, God's strength is made perfect. He said, so I don't mind telling people of my weakness. That weakness, that flaw. See, God uses flawed people. But only if you're willing to To give him the flaw. There's too many people that keep the flaws to themselves. They keep the problems, the brokenness of humanity. And and even, and it's it's weird, it goes beyond comprehension, but it happens all the time. There's people that take pride in their flaw. I'm more broken than all of you. 
You may not have exactly heard that sentence, but have you ever heard that sentiment? Someone that tells you, well, my sin's much bigger than yours, Brother Perryman. God could, God could never love me. I mean, I, I know you came out of a drug culture. I know you came out of a broken home. I, I know all that, but, but, but God, you, you don't know what I've been. All God is saying is, I can use you if you let me. It was said of Michelangelo that he was not the turtle, but the actual person. Those of you that may not know your history. It was said that he was browsing around the quarry where they mine or they, they, they get the marble one day and his attention was drawn to a certain block, a certain piece and he walked around it and around it. He pondered it. He looked at that at how it was and you could almost see those, those uh, 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 wheels in his mind turning over. Finally he told him, he said, that's the one I want to purchase. The shopkeeper had an honest bone in his body, and he said, well, it is indeed a fine piece of stone, but the problem is it has a major flaw in it. There's a void, and, and, and you know, you're going to work on it, you're going to get it there, and it's going to crack and break. Michelangelo says, I know, but I want it anyway. You see, I see an angel in there, and I, I want to set it free, and it said that out of that flawed piece of marble, that exquisite work called David that you can still see in... in, in uh, uh, museum today he, he extracted that working even with the flaw God's like that God sees an unlikely person an unlikely angel an unlikely messenger in the midst of his people God says I want to use you if you'll let me I know, I know it's, it's said and this is free that there's four bones, four main bones in every organization. The wish bones, the jaw bones, the knuckle bones, and the back bones. The wish bones are those that wish somebody would do something about the problem. The jaw bones are the ones that do all the talking but never do any work. Don't look at anybody. The knuckle bones are the ones that always knock everything. And then it's the back bones that carry the brunt and do most of the work. And it's true. But I don't want to focus... On the building, I'd rather focus on the plan that God has for the church. The church is called, the, the proper word in, in, the, in the, the, the ancient languages was ecclesia. It represents the vast, the chosen, the elect, the called of God. Because of that, it is only proper to, to say that the church of God is anyone and everyone that have taken on the name of God through the name of Jesus, through baptism, those that have received his Holy Ghost. And so it don't matter what denomination you are. It doesn't matter what country you are. It doesn't matter what church you attend. If you've been baptized into his body, you're part of the church. It's global. It's universal, if you will. But God also has plans for local gatherings that make up the church. Watch Ephesians chapter 1, and, or, or I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Also of whom you had your conversation in times past. In the lust of our flesh you fulfilled the desires of the flesh, of the mind. And were by nature the children of wrath even as others. 
That sounds like flawed people. But God, who was rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, that even when we were dead in our sins, even when there was no life to be had, even when there was no nothing that anyone and anybody would ever desire, Satan had even thrown you away, but he quickens you together with Christ, for by grace you are saved. And he raised us up together. I like though that phrase. He, he didn't just single out Paul and say, I raised Paul up. He didn't single out Peter and say, I raised Peter up. But he said he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might be able to show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship. Verse 11 takes it a step further. It says, don't you remember that, that you in the times past you were Gentiles? You were called the uncircumcised. At that time, you were without Christ. You were an alien from the commonwealth of Israel. You were a stranger from the covenants of promise. You didn't have any hope. And it says without God in this world, there was a moment. Go back to the Old Testament and look, God came to the Israelites. And while there were others that joined in, that the Gentiles were kind of separated. But now in Christ, Jesus, those of you who were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. He is our peace and hath made us both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. In order to understand that phrase, you've got to go back to the tabernacle and the temple. If you recall and you study the tabernacle, and then the temple was built very similar, just more permanent. There were levels that some could go and others could not. The high priest, at least at certain times, could go all the way even behind the veil in the holiest of holies. The other priests, they, they had jobs. Some of them could, could go to the table of showbread or some of them could go to the, the, the candle uh, stick. They could perhaps, you know, sacrifice. A Jewish man could go into the temple or the tabernacle a little further and then there was the court of the women and if you were a Jewish woman, you could only go that far. But if you were a Gentile, you couldn't even go anywhere inside the temple proper. There was a, a wall that separated this thing they called the court of the Gentiles. From what I understand, at least in, later on in some of the different uh, buildings that, that was called the temple of God, whether it be Solomon's temple or Herod's temple, there was even a sign warning that if any Gentile passed this place, they would be killed. But Jesus tore down that wall. He tore it down because he wanted to show that nobody's better than anybody else. It don't matter who your dad is. It don't matter what your bloodline is. It doesn't matter how long you've been to church and how far back you can go in anything. He said, I'm going to tear down that spiritual wall so that I can bring those that are afar off, those that thought they'd never have a chance to see an inside of a church. He said, I'm going to bring them together and I'm going to do something with them. I'm going to build the church. Tore down those walls, but he said, you know what? If I'm going to build this church, I'm going to have to have a lot of stones. I'm going to have to get a lot of material. I'm going to have to make sure that I got everything that I need ready to go. And so, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. 
He was rejected by the people but chosen for a great honor. But you are the living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. You're his holy priests. I like that. It says you're lively stones built up into a spiritual house. I remember, and, and there are things that are just kind of ingrained in my mind. Um, I've always tried to put my hand around building, and anytime there was a project to be done, I've done it. But since pastoring this church, there's been a lot of remodeling done here, and had my hand in quite a bit of it. There was always smarter people around me, but I provided the muscles such as they were. But one day, and I don't know if you remember it, Brother Andrews, but one day you'd asked me to go to the Lowe's or Home Depot to get some more studs, and I came back, and you made so fun of me because I'd grabbed a stud that would have been great for a rocking chair. And, and you didn't like that one, and so you told me I had to go back and return it and get a better stud, and I learned some things. And while I understand, and I am thankful, Dwayne, I am thankful that, that you wanted to make sure we did this building right, I'm so glad that God isn't that picky. Can you imagine if God goes into humanity's storehouse and, and he, he, he looks at you, Brother Andy, and he goes, eh, I don't know. I mean, it's Andy. I maybe can finagle something out of this life. I, I may can, you know, if, if I push him hard enough and nail something else again, maybe I can get him straight. God doesn't do that. God doesn't call people. I don't know if you understand what that word call means, but that means that you, 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 you've got something and then you give it or you throw that away so you can have something better. In the fishing world, in a bass tournament, you're allowed to keep most of them, you're allowed to keep five bass. And, and so you catch the first five bass that are legal size and you throw them in your live well and you keep them alive, but the whole purpose is keep fishing because that two-pound bass that you have in the live well, you want to throw him out. You want to call him for a four-pound bass. Man, I'm glad God doesn't call because I can just see it about the time, Brother Miller, you got into church and everything was good. God would have said, oh, man, I'm so glad you're here, but I got somebody better that just got saved over here in this other church. So I'm going to kind of throw you away so I can grab somebody that can preach better or somebody that can give more tithes, but God doesn't do it. He says, I'm all right with the flaws. I'm all right with that. He's not choosy. I'm glad he doesn't just choose the straight and the narrow. If so, I would have been discarded a long time ago, but he said, I'm going to take anything and everyone that will let me work with them and I'll work with your dysfunction and I'll work with your misshapen life and out of you that are here I'll build the church he said you're no more strangers this is verse 19 he says you're no more strangers or, or foreigners but your fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and you're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ, he's the chief cornerstone, and this building is all fitly framed together, groweth, it's moving, it's not just a static building that we come into, but there's life in it, and it grows together a holy temple unto the Lord. That's what God can do. Say, Pastor, why are you preaching this? Because I want to ingrain in you and I the power of the church. That the church has a purpose. Church has a calling. 
There are callings of pastors. There are callings of preachers. And we appreciate that. We need the word of God preached. But you need to understand God called you. When he saved you, he called you for a purpose. And he was able to take your life. And he said, I need you. I need you. He said, I've got just the perfect place. If you've ever built anything like Legos or blocks or anything like that. You know, you're, you're, you're working away and you're, you're, you're doing it and you're making it and then all of a sudden you, you've got this little place and nothing just quite seems to fit right there and you keep going until all of a sudden you find that perfect piece. You don't necessarily do it with brick. Brick is a very uniform type building material and so, you know, everything fits perfectly but some of the more popular uh, things now is natural stone. And, and natural stone, while there is seemingly a haphazard placement of those stones, I've done it just a little bit, and I've been around others that have done it a lot more than me, and, and, and they'll, they'll, they'll put a piece aside because they say, you know what, that piece is going to fit perfectly right there. That's what God did in your life. When God saved you, he picked you out and he, and he set you right here, if you will, and he said, he said, I got, a, I got a perfect place for them. It may take a moment. I may need to do some more building. I may, to, may need to strengthen the foundation, but I got a perfect place that I got. You know, I'm looking at a church where this is, you talk about a tapestry. This church is a tapestry. come from all different walks of life come from all different places and, and while I want you to come I you know I, I don't know how much of a hand I had in you being here you you decided to come and and God I, I know you didn't know this when you got saved but God said I got a place for you at the lighthouse a place where you fit just perfectly, where, where everything that I died on the cross, it, it's going to just cumulate in your life when I go right here. This is where you are. And all of a sudden you do what God has in store. But the only way that happens is if you let him build your life around a firm foundation. A guy named Greg Elder had a story. He said that he grew up on the Atlantic coast right there, and he was always at the, at the, the, the beach, and he loved to build, you know, as a kid and young person, he loved to build intricate sandcastles. And he said, I would spend all day making these incredible sandcastles. And, and, and he said, but one year I would build a castle, and there were bullies on, the, on, the, on the, the beach. And right about time I think I'd get done, they'd come and they'd kick over, and they would, they would smash my creations, and it would just frustrate me so bad. He said, so I tried something. I started placing cinder blocks and rocks and chunks of concrete in the base of my castles and I built the sand kingdoms on top of the rocks and when the local toughs came and then I disappeared, he said, their bare feet suddenly met their match. Whatever they tried to kick down couldn't do it. 
I know these days are coming. Perilous times will come. And there's people that see that the church is in grave danger and grave peril. There's secularism and politics and heresies and sin. But don't ever forget the church of the living God is built on a rock. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. And you and I are a part of that rock. They're a part of that rock. It was Psalms 46, 5 that says, God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God shall help her, and he'll do it right early. God's okay with broken people. God's okay with people that don't have it all together. God's okay with people that have stumbled and fallen a few times. All God wants somebody that's willing to say would you put me where you see fit would you you know I, I know you saved me for a purpose and I'm, I'm so appreciate, appreciative of it Lord that, that you saved me so that I can one day walk on those streets of gold and Lord to be honest I can't wait for that day but I also know you called me for a purpose I hear the words of Esther echoing tonight I'm here for such a time as this. You want to know why you moved into the O'Fallon area? Maybe your job brought you here and I'm glad you got a job. But I really think it's because God said I'm bringing you here for such a time as this. You want to know why you chose Lighthouse to be your place of worship and I'm glad you did but I believe in the back of your mind if you'd be honest you would have heard a voice from God saying I've got a perfect place for you. I'm bringing you here for such a time as this. I'll even go so far to say the reason I'm here as pastor is because I heard the call of God. I said, I want to put you in a place. It might not be the most glamorous. It might You're going to have some struggles. It's going to rain. It's going to flood. It's going to have all these things. But i got a place. And I wake up in the morning saying, God, what do you need me to do today? Where do you want me to go? What can I do for the kingdom of God? I want us to stand today. If you've been, and I, I know we had Sunday school teachers and, and, and youth staff that were downstairs this morning, and, I, and I'm thankful for the work that you do, but if you've heard the sermon this morning and now the sermon tonight, you have to recognize there's a theme. There's a theme. God's calling you to be a productive member of the building of God. Not to just take up space and breathe in the Spirit, if you will, Go your own way, unmoved, unchanged, nothing happens. God called you to do a work. That ragtag armada that God has issued a simple command. Go ye into the world. Teach and preach the gospel. You don't have to have a degree. You just got to tell someone about Jesus. Preach the gospel so that I can save them. That's the commission. And I think it would be great if we took this opportunity to walk around this front and once again bow our head and bow our knee and say, Lord, what can I do? Where can I go? How can I help? Would you come in Jesus' name? In Jesus' name.